start noticing that something's off. There was a, a feeling of like, just pick up his cell phone. And so I did. And then I see this message from this girl. And it was like, oh, I had an amazing time with you the other day. Something along those lines. And I was like, what? So like my, like my everything just like shattered. My everything just like crumbled. And I remember being told like, if you don't cook, if you don't clean, if you don't look good, your man will leave you. That was told to me on my wedding day by a family member. So I cooked, I cleaned, I didn't gain weight. You know, I tried to be presentable all the time. I was so fixated with having everything be perfect that I didn't realize that there were some things that were missing. This is Giselle. Giselle is in her late 20s and grew up in an environment where religion and church were always in the background. She also grew up in a very unstable immigrant family environment. Her story is also her family story, the story of family interactions which ended up impacting every single aspect of her adult years, including her goals, her dreams, her relationships, and just her overall life. This is her story. Stories in this series are real stories and are often told from the perspective of one of the two people involved in a marriage or divorce. Because the episode's guest refers to his or her ex-partner by his or her real name throughout the story, and for purposes of maintaining confidentiality, the names of our guests, the ones telling the story, are often changed during the course of the interview. Also, this series is about adults discussing adult topics. While parts of these stories may be insightful to children of divorced families, other parts of these stories may contain content that is too mature for children, so please listen accordingly. I started going to church when I was five years old, and in our home, essentially, there was a lot of like alcoholism, there's a lot of verbal physical abuse. Growing up, I was just like in that. And as a kid, I can remember sitting here and feeling just scared and just something was off, especially because my older brother, he was very sick. So my parents would spend a lot of time working and taking care of him in the hospital and I would just be. So you have alcoholism, parents are gone, stress, because my mom was relatively young when she had us and so there's like a lot of yelling and then there's me who's just there. And I remember I had a conversation with my mom and she was telling me how because of my brother's health issues, her age and my dad's alcoholism and stuff, that when she found out she was pregnant with me, she was actually told not to have me. You know, my tias were telling her to like, you know, have an abortion and this and that. And my mom said no. That's the first time where her and I were able to talk and I can remember being like, okay, God had something planned for me. It was just a very difficult upbringing because when you're going around from home to home, you really don't feel like you have a stable place. You don't feel safe. And that was kind of like my cycle throughout my entire life. And I remember there would be a couple times where we would sleep in um, Dunkin' Donuts on 355. It's much smaller now, but it used to be really big. <laughs> we would sleep there sometimes because my dad would get 
wasted and he would lock us out unintentionally. So that feeling of just never being in a solid place has stuck with me. Because Giselle's father had horrible alcoholism issues, her mother had to work very hard as a maid and cleaning lady in order to make ends meet for the family, and also in order to take care of her sick brother. And because of that family environment, Giselle was not getting much love from her parents throughout her childhood and upbringing. Children are naturally supposed to be given that nurturing love in order to grow and prosper, Giselle was not given any of that. So when children her age were dreaming of becoming doctors or singers or gymnasts, Giselle's only dream was to find love and just feel loved. And I remember being picked on a lot when I was in middle school and still not feeling like I belonged or like there was a place or anything like that because my parents, you know, Latinos... Dad's working in, like, a service industry. My mom's a housekeeper. And there is a couple times where, like, the kids at school, because it was a predominantly white school, they would call me uh, a maid's daughter. And I got into a couple of fights because of it, because that's not what I was going to identify with. But I was also very confused because I didn't know anything. I was like, here are these people putting this label on me, and I didn't fit in with them because they saw me as a maid's daughter. I also didn't fit in with the go-hard brown crowd, the Latinos, because I wasn't born in the motherland. So once again, I'm having this thing of like, where do I belong? Where do I fit in? I was going to church, but I really was just going to go. I really didn't know what that that meant and what that really like looked like. So, you know, here we are going through all this stuff and life is still happening. Life is still going on. I'm a little bit older now and I'm realizing, okay, guys are starting to, to notice me. They're starting to like pay attention to me. And I knew biblically sleeping around was bad. You know, I knew that, like, having sex before marriage was bad. But I didn't know that if I bared my my feelings, my emotions to you, that that was just as bad. Mm-hmm. So any guy that would listen to me, I would, like, latch on and I'd be, like, telling them, like, my story and, and this and that. And then there would be a moment of, like, feeling protected. There'd be a moment of feeling, like, this um, acceptance of feeling loved. But it came with something. It came with the expectation that I was going to sleep with them. And since I didn't, I was rejected. I was tossed aside. And so those feelings like kind of like would come back again. And I did that a lot throughout my like middle school and like high school time that in high school, I finally, I think it was probably my sophomore year, I met my high school sweetheart. I was sharing with him like, you know, my life and stuff. And he was there and he was consistent. And, and, and he was protecting me, you know, from other people that were, like, picking on me because I got picked on a lot. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this guy is, like, legit. Like, he's real. Then we started dating. I remember a year into dating, I was like, okay, he's not going anywhere. So this is great. And I slept with him. Contrary to what I grew up knowing, knowing what the Bible said, but not necessarily, like, feeling it. And he still stuck around. So I was like, oh, this is like real cool. Like, this is like legit. Like, this is a class act kind of guy. So class act that during my senior year, became homeless and I started living in my car for a bit. How did that happen? At the time we were living, my mother and I were living in someone's apartment and the lease was under that person's um, ex-spouse's name. And when they found out that we were living there, 
they had the locks and everything removed. And literally in one day, we had to throw everything in trash bags and we had to get out. My brother went to his friend's house. I think my mom went to her friend's house. And when it came to me, they were like, do you have a place to go? And I said, yes, because there was no place. There was no space where they were going. And that night I called my uh, high school sweetheart and I was like, yo, I was like, this is what just happened. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know where I'm going to go. And so he was like, okay, let's let's see what we're going to figure out. I never found a place to stay. So what I did was I parked my car in his neighborhood. And I had a Honda Civic CRX. It's this little car, two-seater, hatchback, didn't have a backseat. This guy's like 6'2", like football player. He slept in the passenger seat while I slept in the driver's seat to make sure that I was okay. Because I wouldn't go in his house. Even though I had already slept with him, there was something I was like, I just, I just can't, like, and I couldn't set foot inside of his house. Some of his guy friends from the football team were like, gee, we got you, you know, come stay. And I was like, I can't. Like, I wanted to stay with a girl. I wanted, I don't know why, but I couldn't. So that's basically how, like, I became homeless. And it was like that up until my freshman year of college. And that was really hard because... You're talking about somebody who's like taking a shower at Montgomery College. And as that's like happening, like my now like knight in shining armor ends up cheating on me. So I was like, great. You're like you've, you've been so legit. You've been like there. You've been protecting. You've been like emotionally involved in all of these things. And, you know, you stepped out. You did you. So once again, all that like feelings of rejection, worthlessness, whatever, start piling on. And okay. Let me, let me see what this God thinks about. So I pray a little bit, whatever. And I'm kind of like on that track. Then I'm in class and I meet this guy. And once again, 6'2", white guy comes in and I'm like, okay, he looks good. We sit down. We have an assignment we have to do together. We exchange numbers. And our first conversation was three hours long about God. It was supposed to be homework, but we're talking about God. So I find out he's a Christian and everything. I'm like, all right, legit, bet. So I was so excited. Okay, God, like, you like, want me to date this guy or what? And I was like, nah, let's just be friends. Time's going by and he's like pursuing me, but I'm like, no, we're just friends. We're just friends. He takes me to his church and everything. So then we start dating. And his family was so embracing and so accepting and so loving. Because mind you, at this time, I'm still homeless, but they don't know. I think at this point, I had gone from a friend's house to like a room in a basement. And then I ended up with my mom and I was so embarrassed so embarrassed. I was like, I'm not going to let anybody know. And the subject came up when he's like, why don't we ever hang out at your place? Like, why are we always at my house? And I was like, oh, you know, and I, I played it off. And then one time he's like, you know, I'd like to go to your house, talk to your mom, whatever. And I was like, crap. I was like, okay, well, let me just explain to you my situation. And so I explained how I was living in a room in a basement apartment. Now I just had like a bed and a desk. And my mom was on the other side. Like, it was really, really small. And I'm like, all right, this is it. This guy's going to be like, whatever. I'm not getting involved. I'm not messing with this. Because when I first went to his house, like, I pulled up and his house was big. Like, it's what you see in, like, the movies. And when I pulled up, what it reminded me of was the house in Home Alone, like the really big, fancy kind of house. And I'm like, what am I doing? And I was so embarrassed, especially when he went back and he told his parents. And I was like, "There's no, they're not going to want their son to date, like, this chick who, like, <laughs> has a room, a hole in the wall kind of thing. Um, but I was wrong. I didn't have sheets. 
and like a comforter. And so they went out and they bought me like this beautiful set. And I was like, wow, they started becoming like my family, you know, because there was so much instability my entire life. And there was so much stuff. And here this these people are that like are accepting me, loving on me and like providing for me in a way that honestly, unfortunately, my parents couldn't. So that, like, I started to feel good. I started to feel worthy. I started to feel, like, accepted and loved. That love and stable family environment that Giselle was looking for, for so many years, were finally present in her life. And Giselle was determined to do everything in her power to keep it that way. She was going to try to be the perfect girlfriend, the perfect partner, and hopefully one day, the perfect wife. And next thing you know, five years later, we're still dating. And I'm like the daughter that this family never had. Like, they were so gracious with me. And I graduate college. I think it was a couple months after I graduated, like, he ended up proposing. Whoa, okay, like, this is, like, really happening, you know? And we got married three months after he proposed to me because we had been dating for so long and pretty much like his parents, my parents, everybody was on board. Like they were okay with it. And I was like, all right, cool. Got married and everything seems cool. Everything seems fine until I start noticing that something's off. And essentially there was a, a feeling of like, just pick up his cell phone. And so I did. And then I see this message from this girl and it was like, oh, I had an amazing time with you the other day something along those lines and I was like what so like my like my everything just like shattered my everything just like crumbled and I remember being told like if you don't cook if you don't clean if you don't look good your man will leave you that was told to me on my wedding day by a family member so I cooked I cleaned I didn't gain weight you know I tried to be presentable all the time I was so fixated with having everything be perfect that I didn't realize that there were some things that were missing in, in, in making a home, because all that just doesn't really matter, you know? It's important, but it's not key. So we started having some discussions and things being said, and I didn't realize that my trauma of growing up in an alcoholic, verbally abusive, and physically abusive home, I didn't realize how it came into my marriage. Because when we would have discussions, the way I would say and approach things was not in a positive way. I am sad to, to admit that um, I was verbally abusive um, and that's how I kind of handled discussions. And I didn't realize how I stripped him of being a man and of his pride. Not does that excuse what he did know because he continued to do it. He wouldn't talk to me anymore. He wouldn't like be affectionate, like all the things that I like literally fell in love with, like just stopped. And he told me, if I would have met her first, I never would have married you. That was like, how do you come back from that? You know, like I remember my response because there's a lot of cursing involved. <laughs> and I, I literally just was like, I can't believe you. And I just like stepped up to him and you know, he's six, four and I'm not six, four. And I got in his face and it was just like venom. Like I'm just spitting out venom because you had just said one of the worst things that you could say to me. And in that moment, I don't know exactly what happened, but I remember being down and I remember him being like on me. And it was hard to breathe 
just because of the weight of his body weight, he wasn't doing anything. It was just like his body weight was on me. And I remember it was hard to breathe. And I remember saying I couldn't breathe. And then that's when he's like, die, beep, 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 you know, die. And I was like, okay, like something's got to change. So at that point, like I didn't tell my family what was going on. They didn't know all of this because I was going to keep it under wraps the best that I could. They knew about the cheating, but the fact that it had gotten now physical, they didn't have an idea. So I remember speaking to at that point, I was going to a church. I was going to his church and I spoke to like the elders and they were like, it's it's time. It's like in your face. It's blatant. It's now getting physical. Like it's time to go. Because after that six months, when he first cheated, I, I stayed for a year, trying and trying and trying and trying and trying. And I packed my stuff. I called my in-laws and I don't know why I called them first. And I was like, hey, I gotta go. This is what just happened. And they're like, oh, you're okay? And I'm like, no, I'm not okay. And I said, if you don't come now, something really bad's gonna happen. So they hurried up, they came, they got me, and they took me to my parents' house. And my parents are just in shock. And it was just this weird, weird exchange. And here I am going back and being like, whoa. I had just said not that long ago that like, I wasn't gonna have to move, I wasn't anything. All the things that we had gotten together for, for our wedding, I left it. I left everything, except for two suitcases. So I'm starting over again. It sucked. My saving grace was just realizing that at least my parents, they could take me in at this point. So I was with my parents. And it took a long time to feel good. As I'm like in the thick of it and like, back at home with my parents and it still wasn't a completely stable environment at 26 mm. there were some stuff and some issues that were still happening from when I was a kid like the verbal abuse was still there between my folks and it was just like now I'm an adult and I'm in it and I'm now having to play referee like I'm trying to heal from one of the most devastating things that happened to me I'm playing referee so I left I found a basement apartment and start talking to my ex-husband. And we essentially start dating. We had had a come to Jesus moment where we were able to apologize and forgive one another. And I asked forgiveness and I said, which is, it's still very hard to say, like I was verbally abusive and I had the opportunity to apologize. And when I was forgiven for that, that was a huge release for me. And I realized the power that words hold. And it's funny because people that know me now, they would not know that part about me. Mm. They would be like, but you love so well, like you encourage and, and you always have something like nice to say or like, you know, it's just so positive. And I'm like, that's because I had to really work on that and make an effort and know that what I speak is like life and death, you yeah. know? And I hurt somebody that I really cared about. So having him forgive me was on that part was like really good. And I, I was able to forgive him for what had happened. And we're like, okay, we're going to tell our families that we're dating. I was a little skeptical because I was really nervous. And then all of a sudden, he disappears. Hmm. I get ghosted. Um, he ends up getting somebody pregnant as we were trying to reconcile. So yet again, here we go through the spiral again. And now I'm like, man. 
So when he got this woman pregnant, I was like, all right, like, I, I can't, I have nothing else. And I really started seeking God and being like, okay, <laughs> I'm like a rock bottom. Like, I can't go anywhere else, you know? <laughs> and that's when I actually really started to, like, pray and, like, really started uh, reading my Bible and, like, going to church and journaling, like, journaling, like, all the time, like, everything I was feeling, everything that was on my mind, the ways that we would, like, communicate with one another, God and I would just be through, like, worship. Like, I could be going through something and I'd put, like, a worship song on and it would be the exact words that, like, I needed to hear. Hmm. And during that time, it was a lot of, you're loved, you're worthy, like, you're accepted, you're valued. I don't know exactly when it was, but I had a moment where I asked for forgiveness. And I was like, God, I'm sorry that I made my ex and his family the number one in my life. Hmm. Because I literally, like, going from not having anything to having people that are feeding you, Anything that you like, they will give you just because you said you liked it. Yeah. It's like, here you go. And you've never had that before. I don't even know how to describe it. Like the, the, the way that they loved and provided became such a thing for me that I, I, I made it my all. And I know now, of course, I didn't know then, but I know now that like I put an unrealistic expectation on my ex too of having to provide and to care and to like deal with all the trauma that I didn't know was really trauma because nobody taught me. I didn't know about that then. You know, it's not something that like I talked about in church or hadn't gone to counseling or anything. Counseling came afterwards. It came after like the separation, you know, talking about trauma is something I think that's now talked about more. So I talked about it in counseling. I talk about it with my people at church, my, my community. But I didn't know about that stuff then. It's nice to know this now. I wish I would have known it then. But I know that in all of that, like, God has something. And there's been things that have been spoken into my life about the things that I've gone through and how that's going to, like, shed light for other people or help other people. And I'm like, okay, only if it's of God do I want it. If it's not, because I've done so much on my own (laughs) and it didn't result the way I wanted it to, that I don't... I don't want to keep going down that road, you know? So from your perspective, instead of constantly chasing that love and validation from other people, you decided to focus on yourself, heal yourself, and focus on something that's bigger than yourself, which in your case was God, correct? Looking back, because it's hard to, to like see things when you're like in it. Yeah. But looking back, even though those were like some really trying times, I've had visions of him keeping me protected. Um, I can see where his hand was in my life mm-hmm. that now this journey of healing, probably like real real solid healing started maybe eight months ago, six, eight months ago. I'm actually dealing with those past traumas and dealing with those past things where I'm in a place where I feel lighter. I feel... I don't know how to completely explain how I feel other than apparently my countenance has changed to my family and my friends and they're seeing what God is doing. And I don't have that like hopelessness in that, that 
stuff from before. It's, I don't know how to describe it, but it's just like a completely different feeling, you know? He's brought me a long way and I'm, I'm, I'm happy about it. And I'm happy that I actually like myself. I hated myself for a long time. What does God's presence in your current life mean to you? It's something that I, I've needed and he's telling me like, you don't need to perform. You don't need to look this way. You don't need to do that because I love you and I am still providing for you. These past couple of months, what he's done in my church life, in my work life, in my finances, it's like, I'm here. I'm consistent. I'm mm. steady. You're not alone. And I'm like, yeah, I'm actually believing that. I like looking at myself in the mirror now and not being like, you suck. You're terrible. You know, it's like, no, I'm happy to be alive today. I'm happy to smile. I'm happy to sit here and make someone else smile. A lot of times I'll walk around with a big goofy smile on my face. In the past, it was hiding a lot of pain and a lot of stuff. But now, it's genuine. Like, me nace del corazón. Like, it just comes naturally. Like, it's just there. To the point I almost got kicked out the other night for laughing so loud and being so happy at a restaurant. You know? Like, I'll take that. You know? Sorry, not sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll take that. Giselle, I'm curious, what's, what's your relationship with your parents currently after having gone through, you know, the relationship with your ex, with his family, with your transformation and your current state? Like, how, how, what's your, that relationship like? It's a good relationship. However, God's been telling me that uh, they're not my responsibility because I take care of them. I don't know if I want to say like above and beyond, if that's the right way to say it, but like too much. I, I need to like pull back. And actually it was a couple months ago. He was just like, hey, I got them. Just like I got you, I got them. You need to release them. I think it's almost like a codependency kind of thing. This was American Divorce Stories. The show is created by Annabelle Martinez-Vega and Walid Al-Jabari. The show is produced by Annabelle Martinez-Vega, Caitlin Alexander-Levitt, Elizabeth Jenkins, and Walid El-Jabari. If you enjoy this show, please share with your friends, rate, and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to contact us with your story, our email is contact at americandivorcestories.com. Our website is americandivorcestories.com. See you next week. <laughs>